Sound Words, Christian Magazine, Volumes 51-60. Republished by Irving Risch, host of Down-to-Earth but Heavenly-Minded Podcast. Eternal Life Part 1. Eternal Life. The subject of eternal life is found in both the Old and New Testaments, and was frequently on the lips of the Son of God on earth. There can be little doubt that although eternal life is essentially the same, as given to men, wherever it is found, its form and character differ according to the dispensations. When the Apostle John writes of the eternal life that was with the Father, it is evidently different in character from the life given to the sheep who enter into millennial blessing on earth. As spoken by the Lord in Matthew chapter 25. Eternal life, given to men, is essentially the same, wherever spoken of, inasmuch as it is a divinely communicated life, and eternal in its duration. But the manifestation of the eternal life that was with the Father in the person of the Son in manhood, brought to light on earth a life that had never been seen before. This life did not belong to earth or to time, although manifested on earth in time. It was a life of divine relationships and affections in which there was for men the knowledge of the Father and Jesus Christ whom he had sent. Eternal life in the Old Testament. Although there are few passages in the Old Testament that speak directly of eternal life, the subject must have often engaged the minds, and been the subject of conversation, of many in Israel. This seems clear when we consider that on two occasions the Lord Jesus was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Thoughtful men would contemplate the ravages and prospect of death, and wonder what lay for them beyond death. Length of days forever and ever. In Psalm chapter 21 verse 4 the psalmist is writing of God's king rejoicing in the strength and salvation of Jehovah. In resurrection he is granted his heart's desire, for he is sitting at God's right hand with a crown of pure gold on his head, and has received what he asked of God. Even length of days forever and ever. Of him the Apostle John writes, He is the true God and eternal life, but here the Spirit of God presents Jesus as Israel's Messiah. And God's answer to all that he has suffered at the hands of his people. His life was taken from the earth by men, but God has given his answer to men by raising him from the dead, where he lives in the power of an endless life, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 16. Length of days forever and ever is fundamental to the truth of eternal life, wherever found, being inherent in the meaning of eternal, or everlasting. It contrasts the limited period of human existence in this world, and the eternal relations of those who are blessed by God in the resurrection world. What is spoken concerning Messiah in this passage in relation to eternal life is doubtless the personal hope of the psalmist where he writes, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness, I shall be satisfied. When I awake with thy likeness, Psalm chapter 17 verse 15. Life forevermore. Psalm chapter 133 looks forward to the day when the two houses of Israel will be united under Messiah, when the brethren, so long divided, will dwell together in unity, producing for God's pleasure a fragrance like the holy anointing oil poured upon Aaron, and bringing refreshment and prosperity from above for God's people, like that brought from the lofty heights of Hermon to the mountains of Zion. Not until then will Israel have the divine blessing promised to Abraham and to David, but secured through the precious blood of Jesus, the blood of the new covenant. Life forevermore, commanded by Jehovah for Israel, will bring the nation into millennial blessing. No longer will their condition be as depicted by the valley of dry bones, but nationally resurrected they will inherit all the blessing foretold in so many prophetic utterances. After the millennial day has passed, the blessed of Israel will doubtless have their place on the new earth, when God dwells with men through his tabernacle, the new Jerusalem.
so that life forevermore will be theirs for all eternity, though the truth of the eternal state could not be revealed until Christ had completed the great work that will enable God to dwell with men. This passage, while giving the duration of the life that God's earthly people will enjoy in a coming day, also tells us something of its character. It is a life in which they will be united together in divine blessing commanded by God himself and fulfilling God's thoughts in the rich fragrance of the holy oil that brings before us the graces and precious features of his own Son through whom his people are blessed. It will be a life of true prosperity, with peace on earth, evil being suppressed during Christ's reign, and men able to sit under their fig trees, none daring to make them afraid. Many shall awake to everlasting life. The first verse of Daniel 12 looks forward to, a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Israel will pass through the great tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble, and only a remnant will be reserved for blessing, for many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 2. This is a national awakening from the slumber into which the nation of Israel had fallen for many centuries, it is another aspect of the resurrection of the whole house of Israel in the valley of dry bones. Some of the nation will come under divine judgment, the rebels purged from among God's people, was foretold in Ezekiel chapter 20 verses 37 to 38, and according to Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8, in all the land, saith the Lord. Two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein, for the blessing of God, the blessing of eternal life of which Daniel speaks, and of which we have read in Psalm chapter 133. It is very clearly earthly blessing that the redeemed of Israel will have, the Mashalim, who turn many to righteousness having a special part in the blessing of that day. Eternal life in the Synoptic Gospels. There seem to be but three occasions in the Synoptic Gospels where the Lord Jesus speaks of eternal life, the subject being raised with him by the lawyer who tempted him, and by the rich young ruler who desired the blessing of God. The third occasion was when the Lord spoke on the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew, Mark and Luke all write of the approach of the rich young ruler, but only Luke gives the tempting of the lawyer, and only Matthew recounts the parable of the sheep and the goats. The lawyer. The question raised by the lawyer, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, though given to the Lord to test him, would probably be one often asked, but which had not been suitably answered. Since the lawyer had asked what must I do, the Lord took him up on this ground and asked him what the law required. On his answering rightly, the Lord said, This da, and thou shalt live. The Lord did not say, This da, and thou shalt have eternal life. Had any man been able to keep all the commandments, loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, strength and mind, and his neighbor as himself, he would not have come under the sentence of death. To have lived on earth perpetually, as ever keeping the law, was one thing, and to have eternal life as the gift of God was quite another. The Lord does not go into the impossibility of man having life on the ground of law, but shows in the parable of the Good Samaritan that man in his natural condition could not be helped by the law, as represented by the priest and the Levite. Only by the intervention of himself in grace could man be recovered from his hopeless condition, and provided for until he comes to take us into the full joys of eternal life. The rich young ruler. The question of the ruler was the same as that of the lawyer, but the motive was very different. There seems to have been a real desire in the heart of the ruler to obtain the blessing of God, and he evidently thought that he had met all the requirements of the law. Mark tells us that on his replying that he had kept all the commandments from his youth, then Jesus beholding him loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. 
although having so beautiful a character. There was one thing lacking in his life that he had not been conscious of, and the Lord brings it home to him. Riches held his heart, he was not prepared to be parted from him to enter into the kingdom of God. Earthly treasure could have been used to procure heavenly treasure, but he preferred to hold on to the earthly. This so clearly showed that while professing to love his neighbor as himself, when put to the test, he evidently did not love his poor neighbor as himself. Nor was he prepared to take up the cross and follow the Lord. As in the case of the lawyer, the Lord takes up the young ruler on the ground of the law, seeing he had asked, what must I do? If he desired to obtain life on the ground of his own works the law was there to test him, and the law not only held out life to those who kept it, but death to those who broke its commandments. The Lord, who alone could look into the deep recesses of the human heart, knew that the riches of this ruler, with the lovely character, were depriving him of true divine blessing. A heart set on earthly things was not prepared to follow a rejected Christ in whom the eternal life that he sought was alone to be found. When Jesus spoke of how riches hindered the rich from entering the kingdom of God, his disciples were astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? The rich normally trusted in their riches. And only God's sovereign goodness could turn their hearts from riches to trust in him for salvation, and the blessings of his kingdom. Peter, and his fellow disciples, had not trusted in riches or whatever they possessed, they had forsaken all to follow the Lord. For them the Lord held out a bright reward, an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren, with persecutions. And in the world to come eternal life. The possessions of the disciples as being associated with all who belong to Christ in the present scene would be great indeed. And in the coming age there was the promise of endless life, with all that this involved. Eternal life is not spoken of by the Lord here as a present possession, in consonance with its presentation in the Old Testament, it is viewed in relation to a coming day. No child of God would wish to live forever in the conditions that now surround him, with Christ absent, having been crucified by the world, and still rejected by it. All around are conditions that bring grief and sorrow to the hearts of those who love Christ. Eternal life is not to be found in the hatred, evil and fear that mark this generation of mankind, it will be found in a world where Christ reigns in righteousness, and where peace and prosperity flow from his rule of equity and blessing. The righteous into life eternal. As in his previous utterance on the subject, the Lord Jesus connects eternal life in this passage with the world to come. He is speaking of the time when as Son of Man, he shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. The judgment pronounced will depend on the attitude that has been adopted to his brethren. Those from among the remnant of Israel who have proclaimed his kingdom among the nations. Going forth with the tidings that their king is coming to set up his kingdom, the messengers of the coming Christ were cared for by some, and neglected by others. He does not even refer here to those who had ill-treated his servants, and definitely rejected their message. The indifference that had declined to minister to the needy servants of the great king is punished with eternal punishment. Those who cared for the servants of the king are reckoned to be righteous by him. They were quite unaware that it was to the Lord they were ministering when they were kind to his servants, nor were they seeking reward through their works. But the feelings that prompted their kindly actions to those who came with a message from the Lord manifested that they belonged to a different generation from those who rejected or neglected his message and his messengers. And his all-seeing eye took cognizance of them and of what they had done.
If eternal punishment was reserved for those who neglected the messengers of the king, eternal life was the portion for those who had befriended them. Their portion was evidently the blessings of the earthly kingdom of Christ, when, as son of man, he will reign over all, his earthly people having their own special place in the kingdom. And these believing Gentiles also having their own peculiar part because of their reception of Christ's messengers. As having eternal life in relation to earthly blessing, it would seem that the sheep will pass on to the renewed earth, with blessing there forevermore. Eternal life in Acts and the Epistles. It is noticeable that neither in the preaching nor in the writings of the Apostle Peter is there mention of the term eternal life. Peter, in his first epistle, takes us back into eternity, where he writes of Christ as a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world, and he takes us forward to the day of eternity, with the new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, and he writes of things connected with eternal life where he speaks of God having begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that faddeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, but he does not speak specifically of eternal life. Eternal life in Acts. When Paul and Barnabas spoke the word to the Jews at Antioch in Pisidia, and after they blasphemed and contradicted, they said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. God was offering his blessing to Israel in spite of their rejection of his Son on earth. But eternal life was not only for the Jew, it was also for the Gentile, and the servants of the Lord, according to God's commandment, as seen in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6. Turned to the Gentiles when the Jews opposed and spoke evilly of the Lord. On hearing the word of God, which Paul and Barnabas preached to them, many of the Gentiles believed. Luke, the writer of this book tells us that, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. In spite of all the efforts of the enemy to thwart God's designs he will assuredly carry out all his counsels, and will even use the opposition of the enemy to accomplish his will. If the Jews will not have eternal life, God has those, from among the Gentiles, who will, those whom he, in the sovereignty of his love, has chosen and marked out for his favor. Eternal life in Jude's epistle. Jude, like Luke in the Acts, views the blessing of eternal life in relation to God's sovereign mercy, and, as in the Synoptic Gospels and in the Old Testament, presents it in relation to the coming day, having warned the saints of the apostasy that will mark Christendom, and having exhorted them to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Towards the close of his short letter the Apostle writes, But ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. With the bright prospect of eternal life before us, we are to nourish our souls with the words of the faith, and in this way, in communion with the Lord, build ourselves up in the truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures. Prayer too is to mark us, not in the formal way that marks those who are merely religious, but as under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Keeping ourselves in the love of God will mean that we feed upon divine love as made known in the cross of Christ, and realizing that the love made known there is still the same, unaffected by all the evil and hatred of men that crucified the Son of God. Eternal life, though a present possession, as John teaches, as to its full realization is yet future, as brought out here. We are to be looking for it as the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ.
What mercy it will be when the Lord Jesus comes and takes us away from such a scene as Jude portrays into the joys of his kingdom and the deep eternal joys of the Father's house. This will indeed be eternal life for us. We shall be with the Son for all eternity, conformed to his image, sharing his place before the Father, entering into the full blessedness of all that God has prepared for us. Eternal life in Paul's writings. As everywhere, except in the writings of the Apostle John, Paul views eternal life as that which we shall enter into at the coming of the Lord, but, as we shall consider. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 he exhorts us to lay hold of eternal life, to enjoy even now by faith and in the power of the Spirit that which we shall soon have with Christ in the coming ages. Those who seek for honor and glory in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle writes of the philosophers who judged as evil in others what they practiced themselves. Such would not escape the righteous judgment of God who knows the actions of men as well as their thoughts. Those, who by patient continuance seek for glory and honor and immortality, will enter into life eternal, but the contentious, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness will receive indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. In judgment, God will render to every man according to his works, whether he be Jew or Gentile. Glory, honor and immortality will be found by those who have sought them when they enter into eternal life in the world to come. Only those who know God could seek these things in truth, for they are not to be found in this world, but only in himself as made known in Jesus. It is true that these things were sought by saints of old, in whom God had wrought in his grace. But it was not until the Son came that death was abolished and, life and immortality, brought to light through the gospel. These things are not only sought by the Christian, but he has found them in Christ, and soon shall share them with Christ in his kingdom and glory. When he comes to change our bodies of humiliation to fashion them like unto his own body of glory, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself, Philippians chapter 3 verse 21. Grace reigns unto eternal life. The second part of Romans chapter 5 brings out the blessings that belong to the Christian under the headship of Christ, in contrast to what we inherited naturally from Adam. From the first man we inherited the evil nature from which sin springs. And right down the ages of man's habitation of the earth, sin hath reigned unto death. Not one of Adam's race could by himself escape the sentence of death passed upon sinners, though God in his wisdom and goodness, took Enoch and Elijah to heaven without dying, thereby showing that in spite of the sentence of death, passed upon all. He had secret resources that would bring men from under death's sentence and power. Not until the sun came could there be the unfolding of the thoughts of God's wondrous plan, although, in the light of the New Testament. We can now see in the Old Testament the foreshadowing of what he would accomplish through his son. In the death of Jesus the power of death was annulled, and now grace reigns. God in grace is offering his blessings through the gospel, and all these rich blessings are to be found in Christ. We look back over the ages of time and see the ravages of the reign of sin, we see by faith the great results that God has procured in the reign of grace. And we look forward to the day when, on the ground of the redemption through which grace reigns, righteousness shall reign in this world that has for so long been the scene of every form of unrighteousness. Grace reigns unto eternal life, for God has taken us up in the present time in view of future glory and blessing with Christ. When we reach that scene where life in its fullness will be enjoyed, grace will then be displayed, for God will display the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In that day, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ, verse 17.
we shall have forever left behind the scene where death reigned, to reign with Christ in the life he has procured for us. And to live with him in the deep joys of eternal life before his Father's face forever. The end everlasting life, having been liberated from the bondage of sin, we have become the servants of God, to be for his will and pleasure in this world. Formerly, as living in sin, there was nothing in our lives for God, all was for self, as dominated by the evil principle in our nature that hated God and his things. Now it is our delight, as having the divine nature, to come out in the features of Christ, bearing the fruits of his life for the pleasure of God. Under the control of sin there was the hatred of holiness, and we were utterly powerless to be holy or do anything relating to holiness. But the divine nature delights in holiness, and this is the fruit it produces. The end of a life of holiness in this world is eternal life in the world to come. And this is the portion of those who have been liberated from the service of sin and brought into the service of God. Eternal life is viewed here, as in all Paul's ministry, as belonging to the end of our earthly sojourn, indeed, the great end that God has for us in another world. Where all is filled with eternal joy and with what brings eternal satisfaction for the new nature that God, in his grace, has given us. Eternal life the gift of God. In Romans chapter 6 verse 21, we have seen that God's end for his servants is eternal life. Now, in the next verse, it is written, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin pays very severe wages to those in its service. It may offer happiness, and much that man desires, but the end of all that sin gives is death. Death comes to all who serve sin, and they cannot escape from it, no, not with all the great discoveries of men in this world. Science may prolong the lives of men for a little while, but sooner or later death comes to them as the wages of sin. Only God can give life to men, and he gives it in the sovereignty of his love. Having come to God, and received of the riches of his grace, it is our delight to serve him, but it is not our service that obtains for us eternal life. This eternal life is God's free gift to us. Like the rest of men, we have forfeited our natural life, the life received from Adam, but God gives us a life that death cannot touch, over which it has no power, for it is an eternal life. This life is through, or in, Jesus Christ our Lord. We never could have received this eternal life had Christ not died to make it available for us, and how precious for us to know that it is in him that we have it. Reaping life everlasting. Our life down here is a time of sowing, and as Christians we can either sow to the flesh or to the spirit. It is a natural law that what is sown is reaped, and the spiritual law is, he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting, Galatians chapter 6 verse 8. Sowing to the flesh is simply to be engaged with the things of the flesh, finding gratification in the pursuit of natural things. There is no true satisfaction in natural things, and for us they are all utterly destroyed when death comes. How very different it is to be engaged with the things of the Spirit. The Spirit engages us with Christ, and with all that is divine in relation to Him, and those who are occupied with Christ reap life everlasting, and while life everlasting is reaped in the coming day. There is doubtless the sense of its present enjoyment, as Paul exhorts Timothy. Lay hold on eternal life. Believing to life eternal, when the Lord took up the chief of sinners, he made him the chief of his servants, but he also showed in him what his grace could do. He had been, a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but he obtained mercy as having done it ignorantly in unbelief 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13. Paul was taken up that God might show in him how rich his mercy is, and so that others might realize God's attitude to them.
those who have believed the testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ have tasted of the same mercy, and their faith in Christ is to life eternal. God has not only taken us up for the little time of our sojourn on earth, he has saved us with eternity in view. Nothing short of life eternal is his blessing for us, and nothing less than this is to be proclaimed in the gospel. It is wonderful that God, in the riches of his grace, has forgiven our sins, but how surpassing wonderful that we are to live with him and with Jesus in his own house forevermore. Death lies upon all in this world, and we ourselves may be called upon to pass through death, but God has promised us life eternal. This life eternal held out to the believer is to be laid hold of even now, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12. We are not to find our life in the things of this passing world, we are to be content with food and raiment and to flee from the love of money and all the hurtful lusts connected with it. But we are even now to lay hold of the life that will be ours with Christ in the coining day, for this, says the Apostle, is really life. Paul touches very closely here, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12. 19. The teaching of the Apostle John. The latter presents eternal life, as we shall see, as a present possession, whereas the former looks to the full blessedness of eternal life when we are glorified with Christ. But here Paul exhorts us to enjoy in present possession what soon shall be ours in heaven with the Son of God. Paul also gets very near to John's presentation of eternal life in Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 where he writes, Seek the things which are above, where the Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Have your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for ye have died, and your life is hid with the Christ in God. Eternal life is heavenly life hidden from the men of this world, and enjoyed in communion with Christ. It is impossible for men of this world to know anything of the Christian's hidden divine life, for they know not God in whom our life is hidden, or the Christ with whom we have communion. The Blessed Hope. In his epistle to Titus, the Apostle writes of the hope of eternal life, looking forward to the full realization of it with Christ in glory, but he also looks back to the purpose of God in eternity. When he writes, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages of time, Titus chapter 1 verse 2. Between the promise and the realization of the eternal life there has been the proclamation of it in the testimony of God. A testimony in which the Apostle Paul had a peculiar part as minister of the gospel and minister of the church. John writes of the manifestation of life in the Son of God here below, the eternal life that was with the Father before the ages of time, but Paul has his own peculiar presentation of it where. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 he writes, God who hath saved us, and has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages of time, but has been made manifest now by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has annulled death, and brought to light life and incorruptibility by the glad tidings, to which I have been appointed a herald and apostle and teacher of the nations, vv. 8-11. Needless to say, there is nothing contradictory about the presentations of John and Paul, by the Spirit of God they give two different aspects of the same blessed life that was manifested in Jesus, and was procured for us by his death upon the cross. The blessed hope, for which we wait, Titus chapter 2 verse 13, is the hope of eternal life, of which the Apostle writes. In Titus chapter 1 verse 2 and Titus chapter 3 verse 7. In this last passage Christians are viewed as, having been justified by God's grace, and as heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is when we are glorified with Christ that we shall enter into the inheritance for which we now wait. And this inheritance belongs to the eternal life that God has promised us.
this, and other writings of Paul, enable us to see clearly why Paul views eternal life in its future aspect, if the inheritance belongs to the eternal life that God has promised. It could not be fully ours until we are actually in possession of the inheritance. Now we are heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, but we await with patience the coming of the Lord to share all with him in his kingdom, and in the Father's house.